I'm Donna. And I'm Carrie. And we are Paranormal Chicks. Episode 163. Oh my gosh, I have to tell you about this one thing that happened over the weekend that was so freaking weird, okay? So me and Tiffany were at dinner at the casino. It was not where it normally was, so we were like, what is this? But we hadn't been there in forever, okay? So we hated it already, but then where we sat was in a round booth, you know, mm-hmm. which is awkward anyway when it's just two people and you're like not on a date because you're closer than you normally would be. And well, it's just like it was at a weird angle. Like I like to look across to the person, not like at an angle. Okay. You're so fucking particular about things like that. Yes. Well, cause you can't like look across cause you'd be a fucking island away from this person. Well, so we're sitting there, me and Tiffany and our waitress. Bless her heart. I don't know if she had just worked all day, but um, whew, she didn't have her shit together, okay? However, she just, I think, was trying to be better, but she's me. Like, just says something really awkward to fill the silence. Oh, God. But she, <laughs> now this was like mm, more than halfway through our meal. She said, what's the occasion? Just sisterly love, friendly love? I, what? And so I was like, I guess friendly love. <laughs> I don't know. Um, like, what? what? <laughs> she said, well, not like that or something. I was like, oh. what? <laughs> Who says that? Sisterly love, friendly love. Uh, okay. Ma'am, what does it fucking matter? Yeah. When she walked off, Tiffany said, we're at a casino. <laughs> like, <laughs> right? That's um, the occasion. Does my answer mean I'm going to get a free dessert? Because <laughs> that may change what I say. Oh, gosh. Oh. What in the actual fuck? I mean, it was a weird night anyway. Like, Yeah, because I went to the fucking casino without me. Well, you were invited. Yeah, I was not feeling good. <laughs> but it was like the Twilight Zone. I have no idea. The people mover things, like at the airport where you're just like... I mean, people walk on them fast, but, like, I'm lazy and I would just stand on it. It was like... The mo- like the moving sidewalks? Yeah. It, people mover things. Well, in Disney World, they're called people movers. Are they really? Yeah. I didn't even know they had them in Disney World. It's up at the top where uh, Toy Story, that blast thing is. It was like certain people were on those. They just were, like, coming around, like, all the time. Not our waitress. But there was this one man who randomly, he was a busboy and he just like stopped because we're on the corner he just stopped and looked at tiffany um yes sir like <laughs> what and he said you look familiar have you worked at walmart she was like no sir he was like well you look familiar like he probably fucking saw her on tinder <laughs> <laughs> so you're like okay that's awkward but okay we'll never see him again no 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 Mm-mm. It was on like a 10-second delay that that man walked by every single time. I'm like, there is no one else sitting up here that you need to go clean that table off that much, sir. I'm telling you, he saw her on Tinder and recognized her and tried to play it off and be like, <laughs> did you work down at the Walmart? And she was like, no. And then he cut, he kept walking by, seeing if she would recognize him. And she didn't, so he just kept on walking by. <laughs> Wait, you should, she, you missed your chance, Tiffany. <laughs> He was trying to get up the courage to shoot a shot. (laughs) 
<laughs> you know who did shoot the shot? Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Patriotas! <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Nicole W. from Nevada. Talia A. from Ohio. Lauren G. from New York. Brittany K. from Kentucky. Shelby V. from Michigan. Kathleen and Julia, both from Texas. Dana M. from Missouri. Laurie R. from Indiana. Sarah B. from South Carolina. And Amanda K. from New York. Thank y'all so much for supporting us, and we are so happy to have you as a part of the Creepinati. If you want an episode shout out, head on over to patreon.com slash the APC podcast. Hey, and you know what? We know that not everybody can support us on Patreon, but don't forget there are a lot of other ways that you can support us. Avi, listen to the podcast, numero uno, but you can also follow us on social media. Look, Will has been helping us out on social media and he is doing an amazing job. So check us out. We're at the APC podcast on all platforms. And while you're at it, check Will out at Orality Sounds. Yes, because we all know he is freaking amazing. He is the man behind the curtain. He is the magician behind, well. The rabbits? <laughs> I don't know. This. <laughs> well, anyway, head on over, follow us on social media because we're also posting pictures of the episodes and that kind of thing. So you can stay up to date on all the episodes. And you never know, we might announce something on one of those platforms that if you're not following us, you won't be the first to know. All right. Y'all know that I love using story recommendations from, you know, y'all. So the episode this week is from Eva L. in the Creepinati. So thank you so much for this recommendation. Well, I mean, y'all be the judge because it's trigger warning, a very fucking intense story, and it does involve kids. So I just want to preface that with it's not that long of a story because I really couldn't find that much on it, on the case, period, but it's pretty fucking intense. So feel free to skip my story this week if it's too much. All right, picture it. July 16th, 1978. We're in Buffalo, New York. There's a duplex. At the upper apartment of that duplex, there's a ton of noise happening. A lot of yelling. And the neighbors think that, well, maybe it's Gail from upstairs, like, whipping her kids. Because they knew that... (laughs) God bless. I know. But they knew that Gail and her four kids had just moved in with her mother. Again, they thought it was weird, but it's the 70s, and they're kind of minding their business. People whip their kids. It is what it is kind of thing. Basically, how it kind of went down is there were like two women on the bottom floor. One of them was like, man, I should really go check this out. And the other one was like, no, you need to mind your business. She was like, no, I think I'm going to go up there. Like, I don't know. I think I'm going to go up there. So she goes up there, rings the doorbell. Nothing happens. So she rings it a couple more times. And all of a sudden, the door flings open, and Gail Trait is standing there. She is covered in blood, and she screams, You are not my mother! Okay. And then she just collapses. So the lady who is going up there to check screams down there, like, call 911. 
The ambulance gets there and they see Gail covered in blood. Like, what the fuck is going on? Put her in the ambulance to start treating her for her wounds and take her to the hospital. In the ambulance, they're looking to figure out, okay, where is this blood coming from? And they can't find the source of the blood, but she is covered in blood. And that's when they realize it's not her blood. About this time, police are arriving at the apartment. And that's when veteran police officers say it is the worst thing that they have ever seen. They walk in and they find the bodies of all four of Gail's children. Amina, who is six, and Inez, who is five, were both laying covered in blood in the living room floor. Again, this is where it gets pretty gruesome. So if you need to skip forward, especially at this part, this is the part where you would want to skip forward. Based on the crime scene around their bodies, the TV was on and it looked like the girls were just sitting there watching TV when they were attacked. The couch was, they used the word saturated in blood. And both of them had multiple stab wounds. In the kitchen, the scene was far more gruesome. Kylia, who was nine years old, was laying next to her brother, Demario, who was only two. Both of them had been stabbed and also partially dismembered. Kylia had been stabbed or slashed by the knife 63 times. Holy shit. And it said that her cause of death was from massive hemorrhaging. Oh, gosh. I know this has been a lot, but if you've hung in so far and you're kind of teetering on the edge, it's going to get a little bit more graphic and it's involving two-year-old Demario. So if you need to skip forward, please skip forward. So Demario's right leg had been removed at the hip, as well as his right hand at the wrist. Both of his eyes had been gouged out, (gasps) and his leg and his hand were basically just sitting on the kitchen table. And on the kitchen counter, police found a bowl of blood, as well as a plastic container that held Demario's eyes. Ugh. Ugh. At the time of the murders, Gail was in school, and she had just finished taking an anatomy class. And it was a class that she excelled at, like made an A in it. And next to the bowl of blood and the eyes and the, the body parts was her open anatomy book covered in blood. Oh, my gosh. A 13-inch butcher knife and a 7-inch paring knife were the two murder weapons. A paring knife? Yes. <gasps> For the eyes, I bet. Oh, okay, okay, go, go, go. Move it on. You're the one that fucking did that. Well, you know I have to break it all down. Some police officers were so impacted by this crime scene that they were, I mean, unable to control their emotions. They were, I mean, bawling, crying, or they would have to leave and go outside to throw up. It mm. was such a brutal crime scene. Yeah. And it's kids. 
as soon as the hospital was basically like, she's fine. She has just a couple of scratches on her hands. Like, there's nothing wrong with her. Homicide detectives immediately brought her in for questioning. Well, yeah. Basically, they got nothing from her other than just kind of some gibberish and a little bit about some voodoo and a little bit about some black magic. And Gail would just repeatedly yell, tell me I'm your mother. What? But that was really all they got from her. Like it was kind of like nonsensical from mm-hmm. what I gather. But again, there's not a lot of information on this case. But the things that I was able to find out about her past was that Gail, like I said, had just moved in with her mother. Some stuff said just like 24 hours before the murders happened. Like she had just moved back in with her mother. She was married and separated from her husband. And some stuff said they had been separated for a year. Some stuff said for two years. But Gail had actually just gotten custody of her kids back. The kids had been in the custody of the Erie County Child Welfare System and had just gone back into her care two weeks before this murder happened. Whoa. Here's the thing. I have no idea why they were removed. Like, I can't find, I can't find it. I mean, not that I'm like the master Googler and it's like, oh, I can find anything. Fuck no, I can't. But I don't know that story but whatever it was, they clearly thought that she was fit enough to have custody of them again. And then also, where is the father? Because I never saw anything about him, even when it came to the trial of anything. Like, I never saw anything about the dad. So, you know, where was he for all this? Beats the fuck out of me. This is what I did find about the foster care situation. And I, I felt like this part was more kind of a hearsay. I don't know the validity to this. But Gail said that she had voluntarily put them there and that she asked for them back and that that's why she got them back. But then there was a foster parent that was interviewed that mentioned she was, quote, popping pills and that she was being investigated for abuse and neglect and that putting them in the foster care system was a chance for her to, quote, get herself together. But again, that's why I say, like, I, I don't know how much hearsay that is. You know, I just, I just don't know. How, I don't know how true that is. Yeah. I mean, it's easy to be like, oh, well, she was popping pills and she couldn't, she needed to get herself together. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's real easy to say that about somebody now, you know? Mm-hmm. But this foster parent did say that the kids were beautiful and well-mannered and that the kids were, well, the ones obviously old enough to go to school were very good students And that the kids actually really liked being in foster care. They do believe that that's part of why she was making them say, I'm your mother, was because they had been in foster care. Like, no, I'm your mother kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, that kind of makes sense that they were taken away from her. But, hey, you have to get your act together, blah, 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 blah. Because then she's in school. Right. She's doing well in school. You know, and she's could say, like, look, I'm responsible. I'm Exactly. I'm this, whatever. Well, like I said, when police first interviewed her, it was, like, gibberish, tell me I'm your mother, like, voodoo ramblings of hard to follow. Well, again, gibberish. 
So police just put her in a holding cell and were like, you need to almost like sleep it off. Like, we'll be back kind of thing. So they put her in a holding cell. And after a while, they go back and get her. And it was like she was calm. And she was able to give them a statement. Well, she might have just been in shock, too. Maybe. But she tells them, this is a quote, You would probably say this was murder, but it wasn't murder to me. She says that she had to do it to save their souls because they, quote, weren't my children until I killed them. She said, after I stabbed them, they confessed that they were my children. After I did it, I told them to say I was their mother. Who is she, Lori Vallow? She said they had to tell me they were my own kids. So basically, kind of sum everything up. She felt like she was under a voodoo curse and that her kids weren't her kids and that she had to kill them to save them. And that basically as she was killing them, she made them say that they were her children. And so it's interesting that that's kind of on loop of what she was saying to the woman that when she answered the door to the police, to the, you know, Basically, it sounds like anyone that would listen to her. It was like kind of her loop of what she was saying. Yeah. I feel like Gail was a little back and forth about the voodoo stuff. Like at first she was like, okay, yeah, yeah, this is about voodoo. But then later she was like, no, it had nothing to do with voodoo. Like the bowl of blood and all that. It had nothing to do with any of that. But that, wait, yeah, these murders were done to save their souls. You know, it's like... Wait, I, but I do practice black magic. You know, so it's like, I don't know. She just was kind of... I, Felt like maybe a little wishy-washy about that. Police, of course, arrested her for the murders, and she went to trial. Her defense, of course, mounted and not guilty by reason of insanity, but eventually she was convicted of second-degree murder. Where is her mom in all of this? Her mom ended up actually filing a wrongful death suit against the state for like $40 million, $10 million for each kid. Saying, like, had they not put the kids back in her care, they would have never died. But, like, so she wasn't there that night? No. Okay. But I never saw the results of that, of the lawsuit. So she was found guilty and sentenced, essentially, to life in prison. It was, like, 25 years to life. When Gail was awaiting sentencing, she was in a holding cell, and she tried to harm herself. She had on like a dress gown and for some reason she had a match and she tried to light herself on fire and a guard happened to see her and had to use a fire extinguisher on her to put it out so I don't know how she had some burns they were pretty minor but it was enough that they used a fire extinguisher on her so she was sentenced 25 years to life but here's the thing we're not done Ten years into her sentence, they started an appeal. Well, I'm sure lots of appeals, but there was an there was another appeal. Basically, it worked and it overturned the conviction for ineffective use of counsel. And so they ordered another trial. And this time they did like a bench trial where it was just the judge and no jury. And I just want to read her quote when it came to the appeal, 
she said, I would rather plead guilty and go back to Bedford, which is the women's prison she was in, because I'm not going through this two and three and four times, all this stuff. Nuh-uh. You are not going to keep putting me through this again. And she's talking about having to watch the videotapes of the confessions and like living through the trial again of the deaths of her kids. And she said, I did it. So why do I have to keep playing that same thing over and over again? They know I did it. I don't know why they torture me like this. I cut my wrist before. I'll do it again. I don't care. I don't want to be listening to that stuff. It was a lot of blood and all that stuff like that. I don't want to go through that again. Why did they appeal? No one asked me. What the fuck? Yeah. So I don't understand. So if anybody's an attorney and you know more about this than I do, because I didn't, this is above my pay grade. I don't fucking understand all this stuff. You know, my non-existent pay grade of attorney Mm -hmm. status. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if it was just like a kind of an automatic appeal thing, but it's not a death penalty case. So it's not an automatic appeal. Right. So like, I just don't understand, but she got the appeal, a new trial, and she had been diagnosed with schizophrenia And had basically, when all this trial and stuff started, they said she was almost like a zombie. She was so zonked out from her medicines. But there was psychiatric evaluation after evaluation after evaluation after evaluation. And like these quotes and stuff came from things that she said to psychiatrists too. But I'm also like, how the hell you get that then? Because that should be private. But then again, if it's evaluations meant for court it may not be private yeah you know it may you know i don't i don't know again above my fucking pay grade so at this second trial she was found not responsible for the crimes by reason of insanity and she spent two years after that in a mental hospital that's it yes what So basically, 12 years. She did 12 years. I understand putting her in a mental institution after that, but not forever. Yeah, not for two years, for a life. Forever. Yeah, forever. So then I found an article that was from 1998. So this was 20 years after the murders. So it would have been eight years basically after her release, including the two years. In the institution. So Gail had changed her name back to her maiden name. So she's going by Gail Williams at this point. This was the only article I found that was kind of like a where is she now kind of thing. And it's by Lou Michelle. And this, I don't know, I felt like I wanted to say that because it's literally the like only where are they now article I found. They actually had some quotes from her. So at this point, so this is 1998, she was living in a group home. She said, quote, it feels terrible. I have some very bad memories. She says she has a lot of remorse for what happened. There was also an aunt that was interviewed for this article that like wouldn't use her name because she said that she felt like some of her family would kind of ostracize her if she used her name. But she thinks that the killings were like, quote, a one-time thing. But that kind of, that really leads me to believe that I don't think that Gail's mother and all of that, like, I I wonder if she has anything to do with her. 
if she has this aunt that's like, no, don't use my name, I'm going to be ostracized. You know, in, in this article, they talked about how Gail was like taking a bus up to Buffalo to like go see this aunt. And it was the first time she had been back up there since the second trial. And so, I mean, she ain't going up there and seeing her mother, you know. So I'm wondering if she has any contact with her family at all. Well, she doesn't deserve contact. Basically, her last known whereabouts, we know that she was going by her maiden name, Gail Williams. And she was living in a group home supervised by a psychiatric center. And that was in 1998. And that is the last known whereabouts of Gail. Wow. You know, there's a few cases like this. And there's another pretty famous one that I do want to cover. But I do believe that women can have that level of postpartum depression, postpartum psychosis, that this happens. I think hers, I mean, she's diagnosed as paranoid schizophrenia. Now, however, my little asterisk, like, (laughs) people who have schizophrenia are almost always more harmful to themselves than others. They tend to self-harm, not harm others. Mm -hmm. The paranoia and the voices that they hear, the auditory hallucinations and all of that tend to tell them to hurt themselves, not others. So let me just kind of, that's my drawing of an asterisk, asterisk, asterisk. I never know how to say it. So whatever that little thing is up there. (laughs) And I know people who practice voodoo and none of them sacrifice their children. Right. And I mean, if she's in the throes of a paranoid delusion where she thinks that her kids are in danger and that she has to kill them to save them. If she gets off for being criminally insane, therefore she's not legally responsible. I firmly believe that only keeps you out of jail. That is not your get out of jail free card to go roam the streets. That's your get out of jail free card to take your ass straight to an institution. You go from that institution to another one. Yeah. You go from that institution to a more appropriate one that can handle your needs. Because the prison system can't handle your mental health needs. It's not equipped for that. They're just going to give you some pills. They're not They're not equipped for that. Let's take you to the institution that's equipped to handle what you need. But that doesn't mean you get out. You killed your four fucking children. You don't get out from that. You shouldn't. And you didn't just fucking kill them. You brutally fucking murdered them. I mean, I'm not even going to relive the details because I know some of you probably skipped all of that. So we're not even going to go there. But you fucking went over and beyond. I just want to know why DeMario was singled out like that. I don't know that there's logic to it. I mean, unless it's such basic logic of the easiest to control because he's the smallest. Yeah, you know, he, she could hold him while she did, you know. But she could do that to them afterwards. But also, maybe because he was a boy. He's the only boy. Mm. And so, if her delusions, you know, her, there's no telling what the delusions were. Right. That's so freaking scary and sad. I mean, it could have been something like, he's going to grow up and marry someone and tell them that, She's their mother. You know, I mean, kill him now. You know, I mean, it could have been something like that. I mean, 
literally that makes zero sense, but in the throes of a an episode, logic, I mean, it doesn't matter. Well, I'm glad we got that out of the way. Yeah. I'm glad I went first. Yeah. That was super heavy. I don't know what that means. The last two, you have been, woo, dark, dark, dark. Yeah. I hope that yours is a little lighter than that, please. <laughs> it's not. Oh, fuck. I'm just kidding. <laughs> so this one is a doozy, not like yours. This just, it's a head scratcher. Okay. I'm here for that. Mm-hmm. All right. I'm going to tell you about a lady named Cindy James. She was born in June of 1944 to Otto and Tilly Hack. She was the firstborn of six children for the Hacks. Otto, the dad, he was in the military, so they did move around a lot during her childhood. But other than that, her childhood was considered normal. But some have claimed that Otto was very strict, and that caused his relationship with Cindy to be strained. Some say that led her to have daddy issues later in life, which I totes get. One hundred. Were you like, uh, girl, same? <laughs> yeah, literally, I said totes get it, girl. <laughs> I know. And the daddy issues could be the catalyst for a relationship she started when she was nineteen. She was in nursing school and was doing clinicals or whatever at Vancouver General Hospital. And that's where she met 37-year-old Dr. Roy Makepeace. He was a mentor helping with the group project, and the two hit it off instantly and began a relationship. The thing is, Roy was married with two children, but that couldn't stop their attraction to each other, and they became inseparable. Roy divorced his wife in 1966 and promptly married Cindy, who had just graduated from nursing school then. The newlyweds were in pure bliss, and even though Roy wasn't her family's favorite while they were dating, now that they were married, they accepted him. Maybe just because they were like, you know, he's never going to leave his wife, they didn't like the situation, but then he did, and... When they got married, they're probably like, oh, so he does love her, you know, right? whatever. So again, everything was going great for Cindy. She really had a passion to help children with emotional trauma and behavioral issues. And she was able to pursue that passion and work at a children's center. Their marriage was not without its ups and downs. And it later came out that there were at least two times that Roy hit Cindy <gasps> In 1982, Cindy and Roy divorced after 16 years of marriage. It was an amicable divorce, and the two still would go on dates afterward, like they would go to the symphony or just have dinner to catch up with each other. So this was the first time that Cindy was on her own, and we all know how scary that can be. But for Cindy, being alone wasn't the scary part. It was that even though she was alone, she never felt like it because four months after the divorce, she began being stalked. <gasps> On October 2nd, 1982, Cindy filed a report with the Royal Canadian Mounted Police about threatening phone calls. She had received several phone calls that were from someone she didn't know, and they would just whisper her name over and over. Some would be silent besides some breathing, and then the caller began to threaten bodily harm and shit. Oh, God. Yeah. 
Cindy said that there was one call that she answered, and of course the caller was threatening her, and so she hung up the phone. And just like in the movies, she went room to room, making sure all the windows were locked, closing the blinds and the curtains, all the things. Anything to make herself feel more safe. But then the phone rang again, and this time the caller told her that there's no use in all of that because she couldn't hide from them, that they knew she was in the living room, (gasps) which she was. The next day, Cindy contacted the police again and told them that there was a prowler on her property and that they had tried to open her back door. Um, excuse me, ma'am. You waited until the next day to call police? Oh, mm mm-mm. That all happened, and she reported those calls. But then the next day, she contacted them and told them, like, someone's trying to break into my house. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Then there was an incident where a rock was thrown through a kitchen window, and a few days after that, Cindy came home to discover that the pillows on her bed had been slashed, and so she reported that as well. Pat McBride was the responding officer, and after hearing Cindy's story, he suggested that her ex-husband might be responsible for both the calls and now the slashed pillows. But Cindy insisted that Roy couldn't have been behind it because he was the one who suggested that she call the police in the first place. But Pat McBride couldn't shake Cindy's stories, and a few days later, he returned to her house unannounced, and he had a deadbolt to install on her doors. That was the first of many visits, and it started where he would visit daily. Oh, God. By the end of October, Pat and Cindy had began dating, and he moved in with her for, you know, protection. And it just so happened the day before, Cindy had found a note on her porch, which was basically the classic stalker, murderer, ransom note style, like the letters cut out to form the words kind of thing. Mm -hmm. At least it's mutual. I thought you meant like he was just showing up unannounced over and over and over again. That's why I was like, oh, God. Yeah. But okay, it was like a mutual. They liked each other. Okay. Yeah. I mean, the first times, like the first few times, I think it was just him. But then... Oh, so we have this lady who's being stalked. Mm -hmm. Let me just show up to her house and announce. That's not bizarre at all. (laughs) Right. That doesn't make her more uncomfortable at all. Sounds like a great idea to me. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, a month went by and it was pretty quiet. But there was a time that Pat found Roy Makepeace lurking in the alley behind Cindy's place. And then that just snowballed into more obscene phone calls sprinkled with, you know, death threats And then Cindy found a picture of a dead body stuck under her windshield, like those ads people put on your car when you're in, like, Walmart. Yeah. Then her porch lights got smashed, and when she tried to report that, she couldn't because her phone line had been cut. Oh, my gosh. Two months later, now in January of 1983, Pat proposed to Cindy, but she said she wasn't ready for commitment like that because they've only been together for a few months. And Cindy told Pat that he needed to move out, and he did. But they did continue to casually date. The police tapped Cindy's phone, trying to get a lead on who was making the calls. But all of the phone calls were too short to be traced. The taunting with the notes continued, ranging from the similar hodgepodge letters to more pictures of female corpses, But on these pictures, their faces were scratched out. Late January 1983, Cindy's friend 
Agnes Woodcock, she dropped by Cindy's house for a visit, knocked on the door, no answer, but Agnes is like me, and she doesn't take no for an answer when she wants to hang out. What are all these people just stopping by her house? The girl is being stalked. <laughs> like, stalked? No, stalked. Like, can y'all please pick up the phone and be like, hey, girl, can I come over? I mean... I know. Well, she tried the door, and it was unlocked, so she went in. And she figured that Cindy was just taking a hot bath because that was something she did to try to de-stress. And Agnes knew all the stuff that was going on in Cindy's life, so she's like, oh, okay, this is probably what it is. Well, Agnes was like, hello, no answer. So Agnes was like, okay, maybe she's gardening in the back because she wasn't in the front yard, which Agnes knew gardening was another thing Cindy enjoyed, and maybe she just needed to do it to de-stress. Even though it was nighttime, like, hey, you never know. She's just trying to reason why Cindy isn't in the house, why she isn't answering. Well, Agnes found Cindy, and she was out back, but she was crouched down in a position like she was hiding from something, but also peering like she was looking for something. Agnes saw that there was a stocking around Cindy's neck, and she demanded answers right then. Cindy said that she went to her garage to get something. Next thing she knew is that she was grabbed from behind and attacked. She said she passed out from the attacker choking her with the nylon stocking. And when she woke up, the attacker was gone. But all she can remember is the shoes he was wearing and it was white sneakers. Well, Cindy thought that Agnes probably scared the person off when she was like knocking, talking, you know, all that. Well, Cindy had over 10 cuts and scrapes on her arms and her legs. Cindy could not feel safe at that house anymore, and so she moved. She also painted her car a different color and also changed her last name. She chose James as her new last name, hence why I call her Cindy James. But the harassment didn't stop. Notes were still being left on her porch, and the phone calls continued as well. But the stalker had other ideas, too. And Cindy came home one day to find three cats that were dead and had been hung in her garden with a note saying, you're next. And notes were still being left on her windshield. And one had a corpse being pushed into a morgue. Like it was a covered corpse being pushed into the morgue. There were some weird packages that were being delivered to her house. And they were of raw meat and I believe sometimes spoiled meat. Ew. Cindy complained and reported everything, but she felt like the police were tiring of her and didn't believe that she was being stalked and threatened. Well, fuck them if they're getting tired of her, because um, that's literally what they're there for, is to protect you. So, fuck them. Well, the police wanted her to take a polygraph. So, she took two, but they were inconclusive because they said that she was... Like, too emotional, too shaken up to get a good, clear read on her, so they marked them as failed. What? Mm Mm-hmm. Well, Pat McBride told Cindy he knew of a P.I. who would believe her and help her. So, in November of 1983, she hired the P.I., and his name is Ozzy Caban. If you want to be fancy, Caban. Ozzy did believe Cindy, but he could tell why the police might have doubts because... Cindy was elusive with some of the answers, and 
he believed that Cindy knew who it was or had an inkling at least, but was too scared to name names. And Tilly, Cindy's mom, said that Cindy finally confided in her and said that really bad things were going on. And even though she wanted to tell her mom, she couldn't because the stalker had threatened her at knife point if she told anyone he would hurt her family. And since Cindy's phone lines were often cut, Ozzy got her a two-way handheld radio. So like a walkie-talkie. I don't know. I had to meet a a word quota, a word count. (laughs) Oh, Lord. (laughs) Hello, ninth grade English. Yeah. (laughs) That came with a panic button. And one night on January 30th, 1984, Ozzy heard something come over the radio, but he couldn't really make out what it was. So he rushed over to Cindy's home. She didn't answer the door, so he broke down the door and discovered Cindy laying on the floor with a note that said, you're dead, bitch. But this note was stuck to Cindy's body by way of a paring knife through the palm of her hand. What? No. Yes. There was also evidence of her being hit with a blunt object on the head and a needle mark in her arm. Cindy was laying still, completely motionless on the floor, and her pulse was so soft that Ozzy thought she had died. He, of course, called 911, and she was rushed to the hospital. And when she regained consciousness, she was only able to tell officers that she felt as though someone injected her with something, but she didn't remember being stabbed. So hopefully that was after she had passed out. Oh my God, I hope. But because the police had began thinking Cindy was making all of these reports up, they didn't take fingerprints at the crime scene. They didn't get the knife or the note. Oh, so she just stabbed herself? Okay. Mm-hmm. They were just so sure that it was all the work of Cindy James. That would take some serious psychosis to fucking stab yourself. Yeah. And, like, not to kill you, just to injure you. Mm-hmm. So the cats weren't Cindy's. But she did have a dog. And one day in June of 1984, she came home and found her back door was slightly opened. So she rushed in and found her dog, Heidi, shaking uncontrollably. Heidi was sitting in her own waist, and there was a cord wrapped tightly around her neck. Hmm. And it was the same cord that had been used on the cats. So now that these attacks were getting worse and definitely more personal, Cindy was losing all the strength she had to fight these attacks. It was hard for her to move forward when she didn't feel like the police believed her. Exactly. Well, in a last-ditch effort to see if Cindy was telling the truth or not, police set up a 24-hour surveillance on her. And during each of these stakeouts, no calls, no notes, no attacks. And so they were like, aha, Further proof that she's faking everything. Uh, yeah, you're following her. Yeah. So, um, if someone's stalking her, they're gonna know. Yeah, they're gonna know that you're there and they're gonna leave her the fuck alone. Right. And then it makes her look like she's doing it. They're not dumb. Right. Like, obviously, by the shit that's happened, they're calculating. hmm They took stalking 101. Yeah. Well, fast forward to December 1985, the next big attack happened. Cindy was found six miles from her house in a ditch, and she had no memory of how she got there. 
She was only wearing men's boots and gloves, and she had a nylon stocking tied around her neck. Cindy was hypothermic and had cuts and bruises all over her body, and she was in a very confused state, very dazed when she was found. And I mean, this is Canada in December. Right. Well, Cindy could not stand the idea of being alone, so she asked Daryl Agnes and her husband Tom to stay with her. Things were quiet for a bit, but then one night after they had all went to bed, there was a noise that woke them all up, and it seemed to be coming from the basement. So they decided, okay, let's all go down there together. We're going to check this out. So they went, and they found that there was a fire in the basement. Tom tried to call 911, but the phone lines were cut. So he ran outside, and he saw a man standing in front of the house. So he just assumed it was a neighbor and was like, hey, call 911. But the man just looked at him and then ran away. (gasps) He was a bad guy. (laughs) When the police and fire department came and put the fire out, they searched the basement windows, and they said they didn't find any fingerprints or anything, And there was some cobwebs on the one window that they think that an intruder would get in. So they were like, yeah, it's staged. It was arson, but it wasn't from an outside attacker. It started inside the house. Everything's locked up and this window wasn't used. With them not believing her, Cindy was at the end of her rope. All of her loved ones were worried about her because Cindy was always known as a beautiful, bright, fun girl. She was blonde, thin, all the conventional things that people are like, oh, God, you know, like, she's beautiful. Right. But she had lost a lot of weight from, you know, just uh, stress, fucking stress, and her mental state did seem to be unstable. Well, I can fucking imagine so. Nobody believed her. Yeah. Well, Cindy was exhausted because of everything she was going through, and she couldn't even get a good night's sleep because she would have nightmares or flashbacks of attacks. So in 1985, everything came crashing down, and Cindy's doctor had her committed to a psychiatric hospital. She was hospitalized for 10 weeks, and Alan Connolly, one of her psychotherapists, he said that he believes one of the things she found most difficult was that the police did not believe her. She felt that they always doubted her, and she knew that. You know, she felt unimportant, not heard, and that was what slowly ate away at her, that she wasn't believed. Well, during that time, she opened up, and she said that she had withheld information, and she said that she does believe she knows who it is, And she pointed the finger at her ex-husband, Roy Makepeace. (gasps) When she was released from the hospital, she went and told her suspicions to the police and apologized for not being forthcoming. But she said, hey, I was scared for my family's safety. That came first. And the police were like, okay, sure. We'll go talk to him. And so they did. But of course, he denied everything. And he said, hey, actually... I have a message on my answering machine for her, so I'm getting harassed too. And here's the message. Wait, 
What in the actual demon fuck was that? <laughs> it said, Cindy, dead meat soon. It sounded like Cindy will meet soon. Ooh. Dun, dun, dun. Cindy, haiku soon. <laughs> what? I'm just kidding. <laughs> really, it sounded like I was watching a fucking episode of Ghost Adventures, and you have to fucking tell me what it's saying. Right. And then I go, oh, okay, play it again. Okay, okay, I can hear that now. Yeah. So then he just doubled down and was like, in my professional opinion, she has a split personality. Oh, okay. Well, because Dr. Roy was a psychiatrist. So now, mind you, all of the doctors at the mental hospital never diagnosed her with this. Convenient. Mm-hmm. So this was just his opinion. Convenient, Roy. Mm-hmm. And it is noted that in June of 1988, Cindy had changed so much. She was easily distracted and everything just was different. And so she started wondering if she had, like, had some lasting effects from the attacks, you know, especially from, like, them attempting to strangle her and hitting her head with the blunt objects, you know, like, did she have any brain damage? Well, on May 25th, 1989, so we've, like, jumped a little bit, Cindy needed to go get groceries and cash her check before Agnes and Tom were coming over to play bridge, which she did. She went to the bank in the shopping center and deposited her check, but she never returned home. Agnes and Tom arrived at Cindy's house, but no one was there and they didn't see her car. And so they knew something was wrong. So they rounded up her family and was like, we had to go search for her. Something is wrong. And they did find her car in a parking lot and in her car, there were groceries and a wrapped gift. And that was for one of her friend's son's upcoming birthdays. Under the car was her wallet and the various cards and stuff from her wallet. It was scattered all over the ground. And then there was blood on the driver's side door. For two weeks, Cindy's family was very distraught from her disappearance and they were angry because they didn't believe the police had done all that they could have done. But on June 8th, 1989, Cindy's body was found by a road maintenance worker. And her body was in the yard of this abandoned house off of Blundell Road. And it was roughly only a mile from where her car was parked. She was positioned laying on her side. She was fully clothed but her hands and her feet were bound behind her back. There was one needle mark in her arm and a nylon stocking tied tightly around her neck. The autopsy revealed that she had morphine and fluorazepam, like, and other sedatives in her system. And Cindy was only 44 years old. Wow. Now, the police ruled Cindy's death as a suicide via overdose. Of fucking course they did. Yep. And the police think she ingested the morphine, like, with pills. Even though she had that needle mark in her arm, they're like, no, she did it with pills. That way she had plenty of time to do the rest. But they found no evidence, really, and no, like, proof of purchase of, like, black nylons that was, like, the signature of all of her attacks. But the hacks were not convinced. 
And so there was a public inquest where 84 people testified. And after that, it was determined that Cindy James died from an unknown event. Also, the P.I. Ozzy, he was like, mm, this sounds real fishy to me because it seemed to him that Cindy had been taken and killed somewhere else. Then her body was dumped shortly before she was discovered because where she was was a highly populated area. And there was this guy who was living in a van not far from where her body was found. And he never smelled anything, never saw her body. And it wasn't concealed. Like nothing was laid over on top of her or anything. Well, that morning, the road worker that found her, I think he was going to like pee or something. I don't even know. But the closer he got, he smelled something. So if she had been there the whole two weeks, you would think more people would have smelled her. Right. And also, local teens used that abandoned house of the yard that she was found in as like a hangout spot. They had had two parties during the two weeks that she was supposedly there. And it's also said that the kids, when they were all like high or drunk or just being a fucking nuisance, they would beat on that man's van's windows and like rock the van back and forth. Mm. Yeah. So they weren't just in the house. They would walk around, you know, as well. So they would have seen a body laying in plain sight. So over the past seven years, Cindy had filed nearly 100 reports with the police on harassment, physical attacks, and other, other shit like that. There is literally nothing that I have that level of interest in to be that committed, that much time commitment to. Right. Like, someone stalked her for seven years. Yes. Candy Crush is literally the only thing on the planet that I have ha- spent that much time with. Yes. Like, I'm not even joking. Facts. Well, and also, let me just state the obvious. I skipped over years, you know, like, hello, we would have been here all night. But Cindy moved, like, more than four times because on different forums, people were like, why didn't she just move? Uh, She did. Yeah. Well, I mean, you don't think that that was traceable? I mean, come on. Yes. And there were five physical attacks on her, and they all had that signature nylon stocking around her neck. She was always disoriented when she was found. Sometimes she was, like, naked from the waist down. Yeah, because they were probably using those drugs on her. Right. There's no fucking telling what they were doing to her when she was out from those drugs. Mm -hmm. And it was always found with that one needle mark. Oh, and uh, who has access to all those drugs, you say? But the thing is, so did she. Because during this time, so I left out like some parts that just could not make it in. I say that and it's like, uh, I mean, they could have, but I chose not to. But she was a director over the Children's Center. But then just from like her poor performance at work, because, you know, she's uh, living in hell, Mm -hmm. they let her go. Well, so she was like, you know what? I'm going to better myself. She took a refresher course for nursing, and she started back at a hospital as a nurse. Okay. So they're saying, well, she did have access to all of these medicines. Also, though, I forgot to say this. The morphine in her system was more than 10 times the lethal amount. Wow. And there were other witnesses that came forward in that inquest 
that said, hey, we have witnessed like a man around her house or we've heard stuff when she's not there. Because at one point she lived in an apartment because they were like, okay, maybe it'd be better in an apartment than a house. And so she lived in a duplex, kind of like what your mm-hmm. what your family did in the story. I just mean not you, but yeah. she lived downstairs and the top was rented out to someone else. And one time she was at work, they saw her leave, but they heard like a lot of noise underneath. And so they called the police. Because, like, hey, someone's breaking into her house. Please got there. Nothing. So, let me ask you this. She had, how would you say, 10 times the legal or the lethal dose yeah. of morphine in her system? So, if she did this to herself, where was the needle? Exactly. And if she had that much in her system, then... There's no way that she would have been able to dispose of a needle. Mm-hmm. And tie herself up like that. Well, what other people said was, okay, so she ingested the tablets. Even if she injected herself with the morphine, she would have time to have walked from a nearby place wherever she did that and dispose of the syringe on the way. No way. No way. No way. And they said... Also, in that inquest, the police were like, we have this rope expert who's like, I don't know, Eagle Scout level of knots. And he demonstrated that you could tie those knots, you know, like in that position and everything yourself. And he did it under three minutes. So they're saying the morphine would have taken like 10 or 15 minutes to get into her system if she ingested the tablets and then only three minutes to do that. But he's an expert. And even if she was doing it herself, she's got adrenaline pumping and all of that. Like, she'd be shaking. She'd be no fucking way. Right. And again, this is in a highly trafficked area. So if she's doing all of this, I feel like someone would be like, what the fuck that person doing? You know what I mean? Yes. Also, I think Ozzy was looking and she had just... Like, a couple of days later after she was found, it started to look like rigor mortis had set in and or something like that. Like, But he was like, hmm, wouldn't that have set in a while ago? Was she kept somewhere, like, refrigerated yeah. before being dumped? True. Because when she was found, like, they said, oh, she was so badly decomposed. And it's like, okay, like, her face was black from being out in the sun and all of the elements. But if she was there for two weeks, it would have been way worse. Yeah. And of course, some people say it was an accidental overdose and she just wanted to have that attention again. So she did it, but um, she's a nurse. She would know that, hey, that morphine is 10 times the lethal amount. And also, they're not going to pump her stomach if she's alive. You know what I mean? Like, they're not going to... Obviously, they haven't done all that much of investigating. So, it's not like they're going to be like, oh, let me see what she had in her system. Let You know, it's just going to be like, oh, okay. And again, though, where the fuck is the needle? Mm-hmm. So, there's lots of theories. I'm just going to go kind of in order of what I found. Obviously, the first is the ex-husband, Roy Makepeace. Like, he was stalking Cindy because 
four months after they divorced, and I believe it was her who said, maybe we shouldn't be together. Right. And he was like, you're right. We shouldn't, you know. But then when they stopped dating, maybe, or you know what I mean? Maybe she got too busy. Maybe something, and that triggered it. Yeah, and it's just awfully convenient that he just was like, oh, and by the way, I have a recording too. Mm-hmm. Like, maybe support your ex-wife and go to the police if you know she's being stalked. Like, right. they were still friends, right? I mean, mm-hmm. they they ha- they were on good terms. So it's not like, you know, that was this horrible divorce where they never fucking spoke again. They had an amicable divorce. So he knew what was going on with her. Yeah. So, like, maybe go to the police and be like, holy fuck, I have this call too. Yeah. Well, in January of 1985, she had underwent some hypnotherapy before. This was her third session. Cindy had a recovering memory during the session, and she remembered that there was this 1981 yacht trip with her husband at the time, Roy. And see, he loved boats, but Cindy didn't. But she, like, I think they said that she was terrified of water, too. But she you know, wanted to support his passion and they were going to go to this island that one of his coworkers, like, had a place at or something like that, okay? Well, on this trip, what she remembered is that he murdered and dismembered a young couple on that island. And she said that he had help from the coworker there and his name is Dr. James Tyhurst. Well... The thing about that is Dr. James Tyhurst was convicted in 1991, two years after Cindy died, because he had sexually enslaved some of his patients, like four of his patients. What? Like, and then they appealed. It was overturned. But he was ordered to pay over $500,000 to each person. And what he said it was, was therapy, of course. Mm-hmm. But it included a lot of drugs. It included making them strip down from the waist down. Mm-hmm. Involved whipping them. And over the years, he had taken those patients on an island getaway. That island getaway that she is remembering, Okay. When he would take them there, he did the whole master slave with them where he would make them dress up in the costumes. They would, you know, be chained up, all of that. And he had insisted that they signed contracts saying like, oh. Non-disclosure. Mm-hmm. Well, then it was also said that James Tyhurst was involved with the CIA at one point about mind control. Oh, Jesus. Which we know they had several of those little tidbits going on. Here's just one of those little, hmm. Cindy changed her last name to James. And it seemingly pulled out of thin air. Like, it wasn't her going back to her maiden name. It wasn't anything. But his first name is James. So if for some reason... He did do something to her or what, you know, like whatever. Could that have been one of those, "Mm, James is a good name, you know, and whatever. But it's like imprinted by him. True. 
So from that recovered memory, it sounds like so outlandish. But then again, in 1991, it kind of comes out like, oh, no, like Tyhurst was involved in some shady shit. But what if her husband was, too? Right. And they had drugged her, but she woke up or, you know, saw what she shouldn't have seen. And so they had to make her appear to be crazy. And how they would do that is to stalk her. And they said Roy could have had her gang stalked or like community stalking. And it really is to kind of gaslight the person. Like, I'm really, you know, like going insane. Or like they feel they're going insane because no one believes them because it's, you know, you can't prove anything. And it's the most asinine little things like the the flyers on her car, you know, all of that. And, you know, again, when you started talking about this episode, I immediately thought of, for some reason, and I know I've talked about this before, but that episode of Blue Bloods where that girl was being made to look crazy, quote unquote, mm-hmm. And it was basically her brother that was coming in her house and rearranging her furniture. And it was because he wanted her inheritance. And so he was like coming in and, you know, rearranging everything. And then when she would be like, no, somebody is in my house. And then she would call the police and then she would look quote unquote crazy Because it's like, no, there's nobody here. Like, what are you talking about? You know? Right. And then it's like, just slowly over time, over time, over time, make you look crazy, make you look more crazy, you know? Yeah. Well, then there's Pat McBride. Was he stalking Cindy? You mean the one that just randomly showed up whenever he pleased? Yes. Because, you know, he was a cop. Mm -hmm. He was a constable. He was also arrested later for sexually assaulting two women and I believe kind of stalking them a little bit. Not surprised. He just fucking showed up at her house Mm -hmm. and then got kind of mad when she ended things, I feel like. Yeah. And obviously he moves at a fast pace. Yes. So he got attached really easily Mm -hmm. and, you know, Cindy rejected him. And so that could have brought on him adding on to it. But it all started before he came in the picture, though. Yeah, but what if he added on to it? Because, hey, if you want to do this and you want to get back at somebody, the police already think she's crazy. No one's going to believe you. And he was with the police force, so he would know when they're going to be there, when they're doing anything. Like He would have that inside information. Yeah, but... I feel like the situation had escalated significantly worse before he came into the picture and got jealous because she broke up with him. Yeah. So I don't think he necessarily did anything. And some more things like, so some people were present when she would get these calls and stuff. Well, when he lived with her, the calls kind of stopped. Anytime he was in the house, they didn't really call. One time he answered and he said it sounded like the person was at an airport because they could hear like stuff in the background, like loading information, flights, you know, that kind of thing. But there was nothing. So I don't know. The next one is that Cindy was doing this to herself. 
what if at first she really was being stalked and harassed, but then when the police didn't believe her or she felt like they weren't giving her enough attention or taking it seriously enough that she started to kind of exaggerate and like build up these attacks and all of that to make them listen. And when it didn't work, it just kept getting larger and larger and larger. Yeah, I don't buy that. That's what Ozzy said. He was like, no one I know would stab themselves in the hand like that and be quote unquote normal other times. But people said she could have DID. She could. And so she wouldn't know. Which is disassociative identity disorder. Yes. Used to be known as multiple personality disorders. Yeah. And so they said like when the other personality comes on, the like host doesn't really remember anything. Or exist. Yeah. Or could she have Munchausen syndrome? That. She could. She wanted that, you know, like, oh, I get, oh my God, I'm not alone. Like someone wants me. Blah, blah, blah. And then that attention went away. And so she had to get, again, more grand, more elaborate, more everything. But she's the one that ended it with the police officer that was giving her that attention. Exactly. So I, I just don't don't buy it. Me either. I just don't buy that. Well, and also, she went in for treatment for a 10-week stay. And she was never diagnosed with any of that. So she's got to be really fucking good. Yeah. If they're going to not figure that out. But I don't think she's that good. Exactly. I, I don't know. Like, I just feel like at point she tried to start her life over. Like with the nursing thing. You know, she moved several times. If it was her, she would have been like, who wants to fucking move? Okay. Okay. She would have been like, no, I'm going to stay here because she knew there wasn't a threat. It was her. Mm -hmm. But she moved. Yeah. Do you know how bad it sucks to fucking pack? Right. And she, uh. And then, like, there was more arson involved in the different locations. But again, it was like smaller claims. And they all believed that it started from the inside and she lit it. But again, no one took any evidence. No one searched for anything. They just assumed it was her. Well, and we all fucking know what you get when you fucking assume. Exactly. No matter what you believe, though, Cindy was a victim who suffered for years. And the police had zeroed in on her as her own assailant. And, oh, also, there was evidence that was gathered but never followed up on. It didn't fit with the narrative of her. Exactly. At least two of the attacks had some uh, cigarette butts that didn't belong to her. Like she did smoke, but they were completely different. So they collected them. Nothing ever was done with them. And then at one of the scenes, there were two gray pubic hairs found in her pubic area. So looking at that, they were like, these don't belong to her. And we're not sure what police ever did with that evidence because they didn't follow up. Auto hack Cindy's dad, he died in 2010 and her mom Tilly died in 2012. And they never wavered from their belief that Cindy was murdered. 
it's just really sad that they passed away without any real answers and what they felt like was justice for their daughter. But Melanie Hack, one of her sisters, she still searches for the answers and she has a website that I got some of this information from and she wrote a book, but I looked for that book and I don't know if it was ever distributed because I really wanted to read it because Cindy kept a diary. That's where they took some of the daddy issues from, like from her writings on that and just knowing in her mind that like she was losing her mind, but not in the way that other people were thinking. You know, it was, it was like the police force was gaslighting her. Yeah. But I know we've said this before when you've done a stalking case that, you know, you don't believe a victim until they're dead. But even in death, they didn't believe this victim. Instead, they blamed Cindy I don't know if it was the ex-husband, because what's the point? But if he knew... Also, he is a psychiatrist, so she did have some mental health issues. We know that from all of this. Yeah. So he could know, like, what to do to, like, her pressure points, you know, and, hey, if she looks crazy, like, who knows? Yeah, I mean, so, like, as much of me is, like, there's no way about him and that other doctor like killing someone on the island and all of that like there's no fucking way but then we have jeffrey epstein yeah and it's like who had an island who was doing all bad island shit it's uh-huh. like no that's real and, and so it's like no it really could be and they could have never killed that person but The other guy was really good at mind control and they could have like put her under hypnosis Mm -hmm. and said that because who's going to believe that they killed a couple and dismembered them. Right. And it's like, again, part of you wants to go, okay, they did not freaking hypnotize her or use any type of mind control with her. Like they didn't fucking do that. Like... He did not work for the CIA. Like, right. that That did not happen. But then you go, MKUltra. Yep, MKUltra. And if you haven't listened to that episode, you need to go back. Because our country, CIA, is so fucked up. Really? Like, it's just, I mean, I, I hate saying this because I know this is not, but it's, it's fucking crazy. Yeah. And it's like. Yeah, they know exactly what to do to make her lose her shit. And what, like you said, what buttons to press and all of that. So that it makes her look... Not credible. Yes. And that they can be like, do you hear what she's saying? Mm-hmm. But then, flash forward, and then this guy's going to jail. And, well, what else? Yeah. What else was she right about that we don't know? Yeah. I wish she, that she would have felt more heard by the police in the beginning so that she would have felt safer to be more upfront about who was harming her. Yeah. Because her death is on them. Well, and I mean, just take this as just a pure stalking case. This shit still happens every day. And on multiple cases, we see that the police don't take it as serious as... They could, but it is hard when there's no evidence. 
of, you know, when people are like, this person's following me. Well, you can get a restraining order. Well, you can. Well, what's a piece of paper? Yeah. And so it's just so hard both ways. But the police here zeroed in on her being crazy. Mm-hmm. And that was it. Oh, she's, you know, a crazy female. Mm-hmm. She's a crazy spinster. It's just so freaking sad. Like, seven years of pure torture. And like anything, I mean, there would be maybe, say, six months of silence. But that's a whole thing. You get that false sense of hope. Like, oh, okay, this move did do the trick. But then, bam, got you again. Yeah. And she was still trusting to her her ex-husband you know, and talking about this. So if she did say, oh, yeah, I moved over here, not exactly. thinking anything, well, that's how he knew. Mm-hmm. Also, when Pat McBride moved out, he still had a key to her house. So if she trusted her ex-husband, too, of like, hey, here's a key if you ever, like, have to help me or whatever, you know what I mean? Or, like, the key's underneath the mat. Well, that's why in the arson cases, there wasn't a forced entry. Right. Like, obviously, it was someone who knew her personally. I don't think it was just a rando person that was just like, huh, I'm going to make her life a living hell. You know, like, it's not that. Maybe it was connected to the wannabe Epsteins. I don't know. And I'm not saying that people who were into BDSM are, like, terrible people. When I say, like, the master-slave thing. But he took it to extremes with non-consenting people because they were under the lieu of it being therapy. They were drugged. They were, well, all of that. Exactly. And again, anytime there is that power dynamic like that, they cannot consent. Right. You've taken away the power of consent because what are they going to do? Say no. He is their therapist. They can't say no. So again, anytime there's a power dynamic in that way, just like a student teacher, a prison guard and a prisoner or an inmate, anytime there's that power dynamic that way or a physician and a doctor or a therapist or a patient, an occupational therapist or a patient, there's a power dynamic there. And if they don't feel like they can say no, because you are the one in power. Mm Mm-hmm. And especially with these women who were vulnerable with their mental health issues. Like one of his patients came for a eating disorder and his therapy was, okay, we're going to make you strip down. Exactly. And we're going to like, she had lashes all over her body, which, hey, no kink shame there. But that was his, not hers. She's paying for therapy and she believes well he's super smart exactly he knows that this is the way it's gonna work out you know right and mental health in the 80s wasn't something people talked about so you didn't want to say hey this is what i do for my therapy do you do that right like people are going to keep that in people don't even want to do it now right But that's exactly what it is. It's preying on the most vulnerable. He took people at the peak of their insecurities. Mm -hmm. So for that patient with the eating disorder, for like with their body dysmorphia and and their appearance, and then made them strip down. If someone had some sort of sexual 
quote unquote deviation. And then he's like, okay, well, this is how we're going to fix it through this type of like BDSM sex. Again, like you said, there's absolutely nothing wrong with BDSM in a consenting adult relationship. Exactly. But it's when there's this imbalance, a non-negotiated power imbalance. Yeah. Which is in turn not a power imbalance, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, I know this is more kind of your thing, but then with the whole, like, her doing it herself, it's still unsolved because the police refuse to acknowledge that it could have been someone, you know, right away. It's it's suicide. As far as the police are concerned, you might as well say it was a fucking ghost. Right. Because they have literally zero fucks to give. Yeah. They have no evidence because they collected fucking nothing. Yeah. I mean, you could say the fucking blobs from the last episode did it. <laughs> I mean, honestly... So, yeah, I just thought this is one of those things that it's kind of like when people do have ghosts or do have something going on and they don't want to reach out because they don't feel like they're believed or Mm -hmm. they're a nuisance to someone, they're whatever. And then something huge happens and then it's too late. Right. And so it's why is mental health still on the same level of like supernatural occurrences Right. Like, it shouldn't be. No, mental health, like, I love the memes that it's like, in like the YouTube videos, and it's like, if we treated physical health the same way we treated mental health. Oh, my gosh. And it's like, my leg hurts. Well, have you tried to go sit out in the sun? Yeah. (laughs) Or like, my stomach hurts. Well, you should just try to feel better. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. You know, or just stuff like that. Like, Just smile more. You really should just be happier, you yeah. know, or vice versa, you know. Yeah. Or imagine on, on the flip side, imagine if we treated mental health the way we treated physical health. Right. It's getting better. It is getting better. But it's still shit. Yeah. So again, it was a doozy, but not in the saddest way possible, like your story. Well, we do know, though, that we've come a long way in our understanding of the mental health disorders from both of our cases. Yes. I will say, like, this is not just a plug for Discord or the Facebook group or anything, but I really believe we have a really great community that we're a part of because people do feel safe and they do have a place to talk about, like, things that are stressing them out, Mm -hmm. whatever, and no one is saying, well, go sit outside. Or whatever, because everyone's like, oh, my God, me too. Right. Even on Discord, we have, like, a therapy server, basically. And people, like, if you want feedback, sure, let us know. But if not, you just kind of want to scream into the, you know, like, the fucking text. Yeah. You can do that. You know, it's just whatever. Because sometimes it's just as better for someone else to know. Like, yeah. oh, my God, I've had the worst fucking day. I've stubbed my toe. I did this, and I'm going insane. Yeah. And it's like, at least someone else knows. Like, you kind of just get it off your chest. Yeah. And so you're not, like. Alone. Yeah. I've used that. I've reached out in the Facebook group and with a Discord. So, I don't know. I'm just really happy about the Creepster community and that we're just a part of it. And they are showing that the stigma is going away. Yeah. 
Well, and here's the thing. Life is fucking hard enough without someone being an asshole to you just to be a fucking asshole to you. Right. Like, you don't have to comment on something. Again, I know I say this all the time, but just fucking scroll past it if you don't like it. Or, you know what I mean? If you don't, just fucking move the fuck on. If you're in, and it doesn't matter, I'm not saying just our Facebook group. In life, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, I don't give a fuck. You don't like it? Move on. Does Sometimes do you feel like you need to say your piece? That's fine. Because but if it's going to make your day worse, commenting on it and being involved in a drama. Yeah. Just move the fuck on. Like, again, because, ugh. and really, are you just going to hurt their feelings? Yeah, true. Because are you saying it to make yourself feel better? And is that going to make someone else feel worse? Damn, Carrie. Sometimes I, I know things. I pull them out of my ass, but sometimes I know things. That's what that sound was? Mm-hmm. Well, thank y'all so much for, you know, the story recommendations because we love them. And thank y'all so much for listening. Don't forget to like, review, subscribe, all the things. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, all the social media at the APC Podcast. And remember, creep it real and, and don't, don't get, get scared. scared.